0: Today on the audible, we tackle all your questions in the mailbag. Plus an old friend rejoins us. Welcome back to the audible. I am Bruce Feldman and we are taping this on Thursday morning. And guess who has stopped by to join us on the audible again. It is my old colleague. Stuart Mandel
1: back. How long were you gone, Stu? Like a month? <laughs> Seems like it, right? Um, no, just, you know, unfortunate circumstances both weeks where I missed uh, two weeks of episodes, although one was earlier this week. And I wasn't on my deathbed, but I, I was pretty sick after uh, I got back from the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. Feeling better now, ready for the second weekend of the NCAA tournament, but happy to talk some football.
0: All right. And we're happy to talk football with you. I'm not going to bore anybody with the stories of, of uh you being forced to sneak Pepsi into the NCAA uh, it's regional site. It's not
1: sneaking Pepsi, it's that you can't bring a you can't bring a like a can or a bottle. You have to have pour your drink into an NCA approved cup with an NCA logo on it to bring it out toward to courtside.
0: Hey, there's one thing I, I want to throw at you and you know I covered NCAA tournaments years ago as well, but There was that story that came out of the Wichita State-Kentucky game where Greg Marshall, who's an excellent coach from Wichita State, uh, where it was his wife and there was a tweet from Kentucky Sports Radio, which is a big uh, Kentucky independent site, Kentucky basketball site primarily. And the NCAA had... Uh, I don't say asked basically told their reporter to take down a tweet that included some video and people were saying How could this happen at a college basketball football event or anything like this? Um, For you seeing that story What jumped out at you on that?
1: Well, I was a little confused at first. So just to, to give a little more detail Greg Marshall's wife and I'm told this isn't uncommon was really 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 animated during the game and Um, yelling at everybody, yelling at opposing coaches, players. There might have been some profanity involved. And this Kentucky sports radio guy uh, took a video of it, put it on their site, tweeted it out. And now here's where you get a little conflicting information that I was a little confused about. They referred to it as the NCAA told them to take the video down. I was a little curious about that at first because when you work, when you cover these sites... There aren't that many people from the actual NCAA who are working it. It is usually mostly people from the host school or the host site. So I was in Sacramento last weekend, and Sacramento State was hosting it. It was a lot of people affiliated with them. I'm in San Jose now. The Pac-12 is hosting it, so you see all our friends from the Pac-12 there. So my assumption was it couldn't be somebody from the actual NCAA. It was probably... A local volunteer, and they Wichita State, you know, got mad and they freaked out. But Matt Jones, the guy who runs Kentucky Sports Radio, was adamant that it was, in fact, the head of media for the NCA.
0: Um, what was your original question? What jumped out at you? I mean, there was a couple of things. You know, I had retweeted an awful announcing story about it, and I said, "There's a lot of interesting stuff here, not just." I think a lot of fans were looking at it and go, "Okay, the wife of a prominent coach was." Acting, whether it was belligerent or who knows, you know what what they were looking at. Um, you know there was a lot of subtext to that. The part that you know jumped out to me was basically the NCA dictating to the media what they say or what they tweet, because as we know, you go to a sporting event, and certainly that you have, you know, let's say there's a hundred people covering the event. They're probably
1: tweeting all over the place. Now, I don't it's think a it was u- that they weren't. they it weren't was telling the video. Him to take down a tweet. It was, it was
0: the shooting video part right. that they. So, so know, they, they went to
1: with. a very literal. You know, first of all, Wichita State's the one who requested it be taken down, and the NCAA, as justification, used like the literal language of their credential policy, which says something like CBS and Turner have the rights to the broadcast, and that technically, I guess, you can't shoot video from inside the bowl, inside the arena starting a certain amount of time before the game so that's what they fell back on having said that people myself included we snapchat we instagram like people are constantly putting up you know you're not allowed to shoot the game people are constantly putting up videos of the i mean when i was at the northwestern first round game i put up on my snapchat a lot of videos of the northwestern fans cheering and whatnot so you know that's a pretty lame justification
0: Let's say you were at the Northwestern game when the crying uh, AD son was, and you just saw it. It was happening near you, and you put it up on your phone. It's happening in the arena. Uh, you think they would have asked you to take that down?
1: No, I, I don't think they're constantly monitoring that at all. I'm mean, again, this was Wichita State freaked out that you know the coach's wife is is in this embarrassing video online, and and demanded to take it down. And I guess the NCAA, came, I mean. You know, I think the the right thing to do there would have been, well, you know, we can't tell the media what to what to publish or not publish. This is a public arena; she's doing it in full sight of everybody. But they went and whoever, and again, I don't know if it was the NCA or the people at the arena, uh, they they went and did what Wichita State wanted them to do. On a grander scale, let me just say you would be surprised just how often something like that. Now that seemed like a pretty extreme example where she was cursing people, but. I mean, I, at, these, at these NCAA sites, you often have the families seated behind you. You would be surprised how intense it gets. I, it seems to me a miserable way to watch a sporting event where you are just constantly riding the refs. That, that's the most common experience I have is that whether it's the coach's wife or the player's parents, they spend the entire two hours riding the referees. Every call. Why does that, goes su- why does
0: that surprise them. you?
1: doesn't surprise me It just seems miserable like watch the game enjoy the basketball why are you, you spend two hours consumed with the referee yeah, but they're more
0: invested in it than you are
1: true but do they think they're gonna swing
0: the officiating that's not the point, Stu. i think you're so you're disconnected from this. i guarantee you have a lot of people in your rolodex who you think highly of if it was their team and they are sitting at home they are yelling and saying some pretty nasty things to some of the people involved in the game
1: yeah, it's probably true. Look here, you're right. I'm not directly invested in it. When the Chris Collins thing happened in the Northwestern game, where uh, yeah, it became a big controversy, they missed the goaltending call. He gets mm-hmm. a technical. It became no question became a big part of the story of that game. But honestly, it didn't bother me in the end of the day. Like I didn't. I know a lot of Northwestern fans, and this would be true of fans of any school, blamed the loss on that call. I was like, you know what? That's part of the game. It happened with five minutes left. I just don't get worked up about officiating, but a lot of people do.
0: I think that's you. I'm not um, dismissing you for, for being wired that way. But I think other people, a lot of people, including people
1: you know, and even in the media, I what, think. Well, why not? Let me ask you this. If you go there, let's say you flew across the but country. That's how fans are. Well, let's yes. say you flew across the country to watch your son play in the NCAA tournament. Would you spend the two hours cheering your son and cheering your son's team? Or would you spend two hours yelling at the ref? It's hard for me to say. I mean, right now
0: my son's three, yeah. but a lot of my a lot of my interaction with him at soccer is not the most rational, you know, stuff that goes. Are you
1: on. already getting on the refs at the three year old soccer game? No, no, no. There are, it doesn't work that way. But no, I'm not. But we're I gonna be doing this podcast ten years from now, and we're gonna be talking about how you ran onto the field because no, the be your son scored a goal and the ref called offside, and you ran onto the field and got tossed.
0: I I know myself enough to know that I I probably should not um, you know judge how a parent or somebody does that. I'd like to think I wouldn't do some of that stuff, you know. But you know you don't know. Yeah, you I don't. I mean, know. you really don't know how it is. I mean, remember, like it, also if this is going on, you've seen this path happen for probably fifteen years to them to get to this point. Um. So it's why it's why fans get emotional. And look, I remember this a while back you think about it and you're like okay i think this way but then you still see things that you can get emotionally invested in. it's it's irrational um you know so i was going to ask you let's say you're you're pretty active on social media during sporting events if somebody from the NCA came up to you and put you in that position how would you have responded
1: Uh, that's a great question. Um, I'll be honest. I don't know off the top of my head and I certainly wouldn't have on Saturday what the NCAA's video policy is. So I think I'd want to look it up before I did one thing, did something one way or the other. Um, but my inclination is to say that, and I'm saying, I don't know if I would have had the like all to say this right at that second, but I think it would eventually come to the realization that's newsworthy. Um, you know, a coach's wife is cursing out players on the other team. Um, that's news. And to me, that trumps the policy. And that's that needs to be if you have access to that and you can disseminate it, you should. Um, now, this Kentucky writer at first did take it down at their request because he was worried about jeopardizing his credential. He needs to cover Kentucky going forward. And he was afraid that they might take it away and not let him cover the next few rounds. Understandable concern. After they had some time to think about it, they decided to put it back up. So I would like to think that it would have ultimately ended up back up there, even if I took it down originally, because I I don't agree with that policy.
0: Yeah, it's it's, um you know, it's one of these situations when I had Wetzel on here. We talked a little bit about people saying what they would have done if they were in the shoes of uh, Mike McQuarrie that particular fateful day. And I just think that, you know, you'd like to think you would have done something. I'm sure a lot of thoughts would have gone through my head. I know You know, I hate to say it like this, but I think there's sometimes I would sit there and step back for a second and go, wait a minute, what am I fighting for here? I will go to bat for something, but I will think, is this worth causing a big, you know, shitstorm for? And I'll be honest, if we're in the middle of it, it's much different. And and knowing that, I think you kind of factor that in, too.
1: As long as we're on the topic of the NCAA tournament and ethical questions, can I ask you one that I went through uh, this past weekend?
0: Uh okay, God, please tell me you didn't like do something to embarrass Fox Sports.
1: No, I I don't think so. Um, that would take a lot, by the way, for me to embarrass Fox Sports,
0: wouldn't it? I don't know. Were you surfing porn during the game, and some fan over your
1: shoulder like screen grabbed it? What did you do? No. Okay. So no, it's a basic kind of journalism <laughs> ethics question, and I okay. want you know you can play devil's advocate if you want. Other people did. So like you mentioned, the Northwestern crying kid, right? CBS showed him. He became an instant viral thing, viral meme, and they just kept going back down that well. First of all, what was your opinion on that? Was it okay that they kept showing him the rest of the game, or does that seem overkill?
0: To me, it seems like overkill. I mean, if you show him twice— Yeah, you know what? I'll be honest. Even if he was, yeah, eleven doesn't, you know, makes it worse. I'm not a huge fan of seeing the same fans over and over again. You know, I watched. Remember, I think you and I talked about this. There was a game on. It was either on ESPN your Big Ten Network where they kept on showing Doug Collins. Yeah, and um, but like Doug, it was kind of Doug fascinating Collins to is see Doug
1: adult. Like, it's, yeah,
0: he is. I know, but I'm just saying, like. I don't want to see Doug, – Doug Collins being excruciating was kind of interesting, but for me, just as somebody watching the game, I'm tuning in to watch the game. I get that the fans are color and sometimes add to the, the emotional aspect of the games, but I don't want to see fans – and I definitely don't want to see the same fan – Multiple times, and I, uh, hopefully the you know the people I work with who produce and direct games aren't listening to this and taking an issue with it. I get that there's a role in it. I just don't want to see too much of it. And I think you know we see it to somewhat in football, but you see it a lot more in basketball. And it just I don't know. After a while, I just kind of get tired of it. That's just my two cents on
1: it. Well, I think fans are a big part of the NCAA tournament. I got no problem with showing fans in the crowd. I had a problem with them showing an 11-year-old kid crying and then going back once they realize clearly they realize what a big hit they've become. And they just kept going and going and going. Anyway, and people are speculating online, who is it? You know, he's sitting toward the front of the Northwestern section. Is he, you know, like a big donor son? Who is it? And I get a tip from somebody in the Northwestern community that is, in fact, Jim Phillips, the Northwestern AD's son. So I, you know, make sure to confirm that first through other ways. And once I realize it's absolutely that is exactly who it is, uh, I sent this tweet. I'm told the Crying Kid CBS wouldn't stop showing, parentheses unfairly in my opinion, was Northwestern AD Jim Phillips' son. Others ended up reporting that eventually as well. But I did hear from people who said, if you think it's unfair that they kept showing him on TV, then why are you outing his identity? What do you think?
0: Uh, I don't know if I agree with that. Like The part I would be curious is... Um, I thought you were going to tell me you got a little blowback because people were saying you're just worked up because it's the Northwestern AD's son.
1: I got that from awesome. one person and I didn't uh I didn't I didn't put much stock in that. Cuz I didn't know it was Northwestern's AD's son at the time. Well, that
0: you cared because it's a Northwestern fan, not necessarily the or the AD, but you were more in, you were more emotionally attached to this kid, which is kind of ironic considering what we were just talking about like 5 minutes earlier. Oh,
1: uh, the only thing I would say is that I I probably wouldn't have gotten a tip as to who it was if it was any other school.
0: Yeah, I, to me, whether it's a kid, whether it's the Northwestern AD son or a booster son, I'm not sure. I make that distinction.
1: So you're kind of in my. I, I just felt like it was news at this point, rightly or wrong. Did you get that from a lot of people? Or yeah, did you get that from a lot, really? including some of our colleagues? Uh, I just thought it was news, and it was going to come out eventually. You know, there's no way it's something. I figured he would be on like the Today Show on Monday morning. Um, and, and I will say I didn't actually include his first name. That was my one thing I kind of, cause he has multiple sons. I just kind of didn't go there, but obviously it's not that big a difference. Other people did use his name and, and, you know, I don't think it was that big a deal in the end, but it was interesting that I got some blowback on that. There was also a woman who covers Gonzaga who was there, who I have since seen, I ran into her at the, uh, at the regional here. I don't know her, but I immediately recognized her from this tweet that went viral where she took a selfie and she she was like oh my god he's right behind me and I so I said that to her at the regional you know hey I recognize you from that she said man I got a lot of people who are like how dare you put that picture up of him so I don't know interesting issue and interesting that right before we came on I said is there anything from basketball you want to talk about before we get to football and you said no so (laughs) here we've gone a good 15 minutes on it anything in the football world that stands out to you before we get to our listeners emails
0: this is another thing that kind of gets into crowd stuff, but I did see the story out of uh Arkansas that there is possible legislation that would make it permissible to bring guns into stadiums there. Unbelievable. That was kind of jolting because I mean look, we go to games and, and you get wanted didn't get searched through there. And, you know, I get it that you make want to make sure no one's carrying a bomb in there. But just the idea of that people with that emotionally charged events that we're talking about where there's alcohol served and where there's alcohol, you know, people bringing alcohol in stadiums as well, which we know is a common thing in all over the country. I don't know, man. To be clear, this
1: law, which I believe has already gone, you know, been passed by the governor. Was not specifically written to allow people to bring guns into football stadiums, but it's it's to allow people to bring guns into public buildings, of which Arkansas's football stadium is a public building. Um, yes, the governor signed the new law. It's absurd. Why would you want to mix? First of all, a lot of football stadiums you go in, not a lot. Some football stadiums I have seen. The only guns I see are there are snipers poised on the on the roofs. Like football stadiums are are. Um, A security nightmare. Uh, Not that this is anywhere near on the same plane, but, you know, you saw the footage earlier this week where they figured out how the guy stole the uh, Tom Brady's jersey at the Super Bowl. And it was a bit frightening if you're a credentialed member of the media or anybody really, given what you just said about the lengths they go through to search us and stuff. That this guy using a regular media credential that you and I would have was able to, like, sneak into the locker room undetected. Um, if somebody wanted to do something more nefarious than steal a jersey, that would be frightening. And here you have the idea that, like you said, in a college football stadium where people are drunk and worked up and emotional, now we're gonna be there's gonna be guns in the crowd.
0: Yeah, Ryan McGee, who I used to work with at ESPN, tweeted this out. As a son of a ref, and his dad Jerry was a long time ref, I think in the ACC mostly, and as a writer who's been physically grabbed by angry fans. I didn't know that part of it, but uh, allowing guns in football stadium is scary as hell. Yeah, if you were a referee. Um, oh, God. It's just such a bizarre dynamic that somebody would say, OK, this is an acceptable place.
1: I mean, only, and again, uh, let's see, you have to have received a concealed carry permit, taken eight hours of training and be 25 and older. My guess is it's supposed to go into effect in 2018. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess there will have been some amendment to it, if not full on repeal. By then, they will not allow the guns to be brought into stadiums. That's my guess. I, I just cannot imagine a scenario where they let this happen because everybody who who is going to think this that this is OK. I realize gun control and gun ownership is kind of a politicized issue. Kind of. But I'm not <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah. even getting into the larger, you know, should they be allowed into the public? uh buildings i'm just talking about college football stadiums i think they've got to make some sort of car out some sort of exception for that that's just a terrible idea
0: yes i'm curious how the sec would feel about it too because this is you know in assuming this was not just well i guess it also could be sunbelt games or you know if it's all well, so state could, and- could
1: the sec pass its own rule specifically outlawing it. Well, if you think about it, if, you know, they have officials, they have, they have visiting teams, they have, you
0: know, other fans who are going to come into it. I'm curious how Greg Sankey and the SEC also, like I like you said, I mean, this is a, if this is in the state of Arkansas, there's other, you know, colleges. And it's not just, we're, we're obviously talking right now about FBS football, but, you know, Arkansas state, you know, plays games in there as well. SB Nation so.
1: points out that on the same day, this, this law passed, the SEC announced a new clear bag policy, banning purses, binocular bags, backpacks, and any other non-clear containers that are bigger than tiny. Um, I think the SEC and even maybe the University of Arkansas, if they are so inclined, could could make their own policies, um, outlawing guns. And then the school. Well, let's just stick with the SEC. The SEC could make that policy. Arkansas, as a member of the NCAA and um, as a member of the SEC, would have to enforce it. But then presumably if somebody really, truly was worked up and wanted to bring it, they could sue them and say, you're violating state law. So uh, this could get really messy. Yeah. You want to get to the mailbag? I do because I think that'll be less contentious. Okay. Let's do it.
0: It's the mailbag from a computer. So not literally a bag, but just mail.
1: As always. You can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Bruce, it's your favorite subject. You've been talking about it for months now. The quarterbacks in this year's NFL draft class. This comes from Will Radney. Hey, Stu and Bruce, big fan of the show. I've gotten a bunch of my buddies from college to start listening to it. Excellent. He has followed my instructions that are at the end of every episode to tell your friends. He's got a question on Mitch. I believe it's now Mitchell Trubisky. In your mind or the minds of college or NFL people you've talked to, What makes Trubisky any different than guys like Blake Bortles, Ryan Tannehill, Christian Ponder, and Blaine Gabbert in recent years seems to have the NFL QB prototype build, but similar college trajectories of only one or two years starting experience without a ton to show for it in the win-loss column?
0: The one thing I've heard is that Trubisky is, quote, a more natural passer than those other guys. And that's the thing that people seem like he is more comfortable making throws down the field and. That's the stuff I heard coming out of his pro day earlier this week. Uh, You know, it's interesting to look back. Those four guys in particular, one of the things I think that three of the four have in common, especially Tannehill, uh, Ponder, and Gabbard, is they're really, really good athletes. Now, Blake Bortles isn't quite as as dynamic an athlete as those other guys, but I think that played into them. Yeah. yeah, you know, but it's a crapshoot, like we said. I mean Correct me if I'm wrong, look, but Ryan
1: Tannehill has gone on to be a starter for several years. Yeah,
0: I mean of that group, I think he's the one, you know, the latter two guys were top top twelve picks and and obviously did not work out. Blake Bortles is really struggling. So, you know,
1: Christian Ponder at this point is the is the second least famous person in his own marriage. It might be the third most
0: famous <laughs> person true. In
1: the family if the if the Instagram account is gone. selfishly. Um, I'm I'm disappointed, but obviously happy for her that we are losing Sam Ponder from the college football world. She's officially been announced as one of the new NFL hosts on ESPN replacing Chris Berman. So we will not be seeing her on the sidelines of college football games anymore which follows on the footsteps of our own Shannon Spake leaving college football to become a NASCAR uh, host. We're losing everybody but you. You're the last sideline reporter left. That is not true. Um, let me ask you this about the quarterbacks, though. If I were to go back and find the scouting reports at the time of Blake Bortles, Ryan Tannehill, Christian Ponder, and Blaine Gabbert, don't you think I would find a lot of people saying, "Oh, they're natural passers"?
0: I don't know. I
1: think you could. I think
0: what you'd find is a bunch of people who publicly would go on the record saying they really liked them because there's a reason why those guys got drafted, you know, in the top fifteen. So, and in the Bortles case, top
1: five or whatever, I I'm think that I, I beauty in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, I, I think I, I shy away from guys that don't have a lot of experience and it's not, you don't have to lead your team to the national championship because obviously there's only so, so many teams that can do that, but I want to see production. I want to see guys who were at the top of the passer ratings and, and played for three years and did something on the field as opposed to, well, he's got the, he played one year And he and we really like the the measurables. You know, I I, how often does that route work as opposed to successful college quarterback becomes successful NFL quarterback?
0: Let's play this quickly. Uh, In your perspective, rank the top four guys who if you were an NFL executive or decision maker, you would draft and how highly you'd be willing to spend a draft pick on them.
1: Are you giving me a list?
0: Oh, I'll give you a list if it makes it easier. Okay. These are so, quarterbacks? Yes, these are just quarterbacks. Okay. And tell me, first of all, you could say yes or no if you'd want them on your team, and okay. then you would tell me what round you think you would spend a pick on them
1: for. All right.
0: Uh, first, we'll say Mitch Trubisky.
1: I don't have anything personally against Mitch Trubisky, but it would be like a fourth round pick. Okay, wow, that's pretty part of the down. Okay, Deshaun Kaiser. Hmm, that's tougher. Um, Sean Kaiser, He does have experience. I know they didn't do well this past year, but he's played some college football at a high level. I would want him on my team, but I would only take him as a second-round pick. Okay. Patrick
0: Mahomes, Texas Tech.
1: Seems to me I'm higher on him than those guys you talked to at the Combine who thought he was undraftable. Yeah. I would take him with a third-round pick. Third-round pick. Deshaun Watson. I would take him with a first-round pick, and if I re- if I had the number one pick and I absolutely needed a quarterback, I would take him. I I, I, w- I would want Miles Garrett more than I would want Deshaun Watson, but if it was a situation where like we have no quarterback, I would pass on Miles Garrett to take Deshaun Watson. Chad Kelly from Ole Miss. Not not drafting, not signing as a free agent. Uh, I was going to say Peterman from Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. Um, do I get your answers on these at any point? Uh, if you want to throw them at me, I'll, you can. I'll, I'll take a second rounder on Peterman. What about you? Uh,
0: I don't know if I would go that high, but yeah, I would I would say he's a top 75 pick. i go third round on Peterman. Third round. Okay, so that's the same.
1: What was yours on um, Kaiser?
0: Kaiser's the wild card to me. The only one I really disagree with you on is Trubisky. You have him as a fourth round pick. I think he probably
1: – I would be willing to spend a top 40 pick on him. Is that based on what pe- NFL people are telling you or that's based yes. on you watched North Carolina this season and you were so blown away with – that's the problem, right? In all fairness, I did not watch North Carolina that much. If I
0: saw two games this year on TV, that was a lot. I'll be honest. The that's... ones
1: I saw the most were the Florida State game where they upset Florida State and he was fantastic in that game. And the Sun Bowl against Stanford, and he was not fantastic in that game. So, you know, obviously, if I were actual NFL GM, I would watch all of his games. But you know, my, I'm I guess I'm I'm saying because I haven't personally seen it, I'm not as comfortable. You're saying even though you haven't personally seen it, you're going to take these guys' word for it, and you're going to take a first round pick on him.
0: I I did not say I would take a first round. I said a top forty pick. 40. I said I would probably take take them high in the second and round. And where are you
1: by. on Mahomes?
0: You know, here's one. I've seen Pat in person a lot. I would not be comfortable taking him in the first two rounds. He could be a great quarterback two years from now. I'm just a little skeptical. I don't know if I would even take him in the first three rounds. The boomer bust part, I would take Deshaun Watson really high. Uh, I wouldn't take him over Miles Garrett, but I would take him probably anywhere outside the top five uh-huh. if I needed a quarterback. Uh, I wouldn't touch Chad Kelly, like you said. Um,
1: you know, I, I'm sure there is a guy. Just to guy be clear, up, Chad Kelly for us is not about as much about football as the off-field stuff. Correct. Yeah. Um.
0: So, you know, and I don't know. I don't know what you look at in the 2018 draft. You know, a lot of people just speculate that both quarterbacks from from the L.A. schools, Sam Darnall and, and Josh Rosen will come out. You know, there's two really good quarterbacks in the state of Oklahoma. One, I think, is a more of a prototype NFL quarterback. That's Mason Rudolph from Oklahoma State. The other one is is obviously Baker Mayfield at OU. Um,
1: so right now, you're right. Like, however many months – wait, 14 months away from f- – f- 13 months away from next year's NFL draft, everybody just assumes Sam Darnold and uh, Josh. By the something.
0: way, the Sam Darnold stuff, Sam Darnold's played less football than mm-hmm. Mitch Trubisky has. Well, that's so, why I was going
1: to ask you. A lot changes in a year, right? I yeah. remember going into Brett Hunley's last season of college. He was universally talked about as not only a first-round pick, but as possibly the number one pick. And then he got drafted in, what, the fourth round? Um, yeah. Of those two, who would you be least surprised if a year from now they are not even close to being a first-round pick? Of the two L.A. kids? Yeah. Um. You know, I
0: think Darnold has more around him. He's also not changing systems. This is the third offensive coordinator and third quarterback coach for Josh Rosen in three years. So, I don't know. I mean, I would say probably... Darnold's in a in a, in a more safe, safer position, so I think he's a safer bet at this point. But he's even played less football than... You know, Rosen's played a year and a half because he was injured for half the season. But I, I don't know.
1: I think much, in Darnold's case, much will depend on... Um, I mean, right now, UFC they're, is they're coming off the Rose Bowl win. They're hot. They're probably going to be a preseason top three team. But who knows? I mean, they might go eight and four. And then and, and Darnold right a lot blame changes. for it. And his stock goes down. Now, if he leads them the national title, I think we can both agree, his stock will be extremely high. Yeah. By the uh, way, before we move on yeah. to this next question, just to, to fill, finish up on Will's question, Christian Ponder,
0: we should say this. He did start pretty much three years at Florida State. So... There was a body of work there for him. It wasn't the most, you know, here's an issue. It I mean, wasn't Christian like Ponder's, the
1: greatest era of Florida
0: State football. No, it wasn't. Also, Christian Ponder's touchdown-interception ratio was 49 to 30, which is not that good, especially in college football. And his his completion percentage was under 60%. So.
1: Two So things. I remember everybody being very surprised that he went as high as he did. Also, if I'm not mistaken, not Bortles. He was later, but all the other guys were in— Tannehill, Ponder, and Gabbert were in the same quarterback class as Cam Newton. Yeah. Cam Newton, now technically, he only had one year of experience, but it was an amazing year. And there was no doubt in my mind he was the best of that group. But I remember, I'm not going to say individual names, I don't remember who said what, but I remember prominent draft analysts went out and said, you know, he doesn't fit the mold, uh... Gabbard's. Somebody definitely was was writing that Gabbard is better than Cam Newton. Um, Yeah, I
0: don't want. Yeah, no question about it. I remember actually writing about that in my QB book. And it's, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. And look, there's a lot of people still, you know, football people who take issue with how Cam Newton plays the position. But, you know what? He's, to me, such an outlier physically that I think it's just, you know, a lot of the rules don't really fit with him. Um, Moving along to. Mike Osterreiter, Uh, guys love the podcast. What are your thoughts on Pitt's hiring of Sean Watson as offensive coordinator? The reaction was mixed among Pitt fans due to his time at Texas, but I like the hire. I see him as a season play caller whose time at Louisville is more reflective of his skills and acumen. I also think Pat Narduzzi should get the benefit of the doubt seeing as his last two OCs were both hired away from top tier SCC schools. Would love to hear your thoughts.
1: Um, I would say I'm less less than impressed. Uh, wow, well, I completely forgot that Sean Watson was in Indiana last year. He's worked at a lot of different places. He's had some success, but he's also had some really rocky tenures at some of these places. Actually, our friend Joel Klatt played for Sean Watson once upon a time.
0: Joel speaks very, very highly of Sean Watson.
1: I'm just saying after the run they just had with Matt Canada, he was really good. Uh I don't know. Uh, he he may well be fine, but it's but uh, this isn't one where I say, "Oh, wow, great hire by Pitt."
0: Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I I think I think Mike's comment is right. I think it was mixed reviews on that. We'll see how it goes. Uh you know, he did well with Louisville at uh was certainly with Teddy Bridgewater and, you know, credit to him, and like we said, Joel really speaks highly of him. Texas was a, was a awkward situation to say the least. And I think there was a lot of mismatch parts, you know, obviously some of that's on him. I, you know, I know some of the reaction to him from his time at Nebraska wasn't that positive from, from people I know around the program. But, uh, you know, when you've coached as long as he has, and he's not 70, but he's, you know, he's been in the business for 20 plus years. There's more of a body of work for him. So you're going to get some pluses and you're going to get some minuses. So we'll, we'll, see.
1: um, yeah, I'm looking through the track record now. Um, let's just stick to when he became an OC at Colorado. They won a they won a couple of division titles. I think they actually won four division titles in his time there. But ultimately, that staff ended up getting fired. Goes to Nebraska. Not a great run as Nebraska's OC, no question about that. Goes to Louisville. Has some great success with Teddy Bridgewater. Goes to Texas. That does not go well. Indiana last year was pretty good. So yeah,
0: I'm gonna let's say the Indiana thing is a a Kevin Wilson thing, though. He's the real, you know. Say what you want about the the exit that Kevin Wilson had. You don't hear a lot of people saying Kevin Wilson is not a good, you know, actual coach or doesn't know what he's doing on the field.
1: I'm talking myself into being more optimistic about it as we as we go through this. Peter Fumo from Horsham, Pennsylvania. Horsham or Horsham, Pennsylvania. I should know this, and I don't know this. I'm Dear sorry. Dear Bruce and Stu, love the podcast, especially during the doldrums of the off season. I assume early signing in December does not supplant National Signing Day. That is correct. If so, what is, incentive is there for a top recruit to sign early? A lot can change in six weeks. Well, the incentive is to, to hopefully get the
0: clutter off your phone and the people to stop hounding you if you really are comfortable to do that. To me, that's the biggest incentive, and that's part of the reason why – they you know, people have pushed for this just to take away distractions and all the attention and all, all the drama that comes with that. And I think that's significant. Also, you'd have, you know, less of our peers who cover recruiting saying, Hey, are, you know, this is happening. Are you reacting to this? And also I think it's probably the incentive to tell, you know, for them to actually almost act in official recruiter capacities if they're trying to help recruit other guys to sign with them.
1: Yeah, I I think like 80% of recruits know by early December whether, you know, they've they've made up their mind, they're not going to be swayed, they're not going to decommit. And so there's a chance to just get it over with because right now coaches spend a lot of those, you know, official visits that they have in December and January basically babysitting their committed recruits instead of, you know, just focusing on swaying the, the guys who are still undecided. Um, the only thing I would say, I mean, people are all over the map on this, including I asked every coach I had on a signing day and, and some of them thought, oh, it's, it's, you know, not going to be that different. And some of them thought, uh, well, I don't know that anybody came out and said it on our podcast, but I've heard others say they basically think it will replace the December date will basically replace the February date because coaches are just going to pressure all the kids to sign early. You know, the, the one factor that I just cannot figure out how it's going to work is coaching changes. if you, if you, sign on December, I don't what is it, December 15th or so, and then mm-hmm. your coach leaves for an NFL job two weeks later, you're stuck. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of appeals that people are going to be pushing through, I think. Right. So, and, and that obviously position coaches, that happens anyway now after signing day, but a lot more of that, you know, I mean, the shuffling of coordinators and whatnot, that's all taking place around that time. Exactly.
0: Next up, this is from Kevin Quisian.
1: Sorry, Kevin. I bet I'm
0: butchering this name. Kevin Kweesian, I love the podcast. I look forward to it every week. Thank you, Kevin. So my question is, as a huge USC fan, is it wrong to still be skeptical on if Clay Helton is really the guy that will bring us back to glory or is he the product of Sam Darnold's magic? While watching games last year, I still saw the same problems we had for the last couple of years being ran over by powerful teams and not having an ultra strong run game.
1: Yeah, I don't think you can ever make up your mind on somebody on a coach based off one season. And he had a great season. And I don't think it was just Sam Darnold's magic. Uh, obviously, he had a lot to do with Sam Darnold's magic. There are a lot of other guys that had a big part of that success. And frankly, some of them are gone now, especially... I mean, how important was Adore Jackson to that team? My gosh. Uh, you know, in several different roles. Juju Smith-Schuster, very important to that team's success. So, you know, I think... The pressure actually ramps up a little bit on Clay Helton in that, okay, what are you going to? You have expectations now. Yeah, you have
0: bigger expectations. Like you said, they're going to be probably preseason top five. Now let's not let's not kid ourselves. There was a ton of pressure when he was one in three, and they kind of had a clunker at the end of last year. Once he named was named the the actual full time head coach, and so people were like, you know, is he going to survive it? I give Clay Helton and his staff a lot of credit. For turning things around. You can put some, you know, sure, you can give a lot of credit to Sam Darnold, but I think they deserve plenty of credit. But now, in some ways, there's it feels a little bit like it did the year after going in the offseason after Lane Kiffin's team had gone and you know, had beaten Oregon. And I think they were 10 and 2 and Bar- and Barkley was coming back, and they were preseason number one. Now, granted, they were still dealing with the NCAA sanctions, but We'll see how they respond to this.
1: I think it's very similar to that context leading up to the um, that season that you're talking about, 2012 season. Hopefully, Clay Helton can handle it better than Lane Kiffin did. Do you think it would have been—so obviously, like you said, the pressure was very high when they were 1-3, and, and people were ready to fire him right then. Then it went to the opposite extreme, where they end up winning every game the rest of the way and winning the Rose Bowl and now creating this, like you said, huge expectations for next year. Theoretically, would he have been better off maybe losing one more game during the course of the season than going to a lesser bowl game, let's say the Alamo Bowl, winning it and going nine and four? Because then he would have gotten the critics off his back, but he wouldn't have these these enormous expectations going to this year.
0: Yeah, the expectations were still going to be huge, but I think that probably would been a bad thing, assuming it wasn't the UCLA game he lost. Um but yeah, so I'm going to put you on the spot, and I'm going to make a rule that you don't get to ask me the same question, because that's that's awkward. I'm sure Kevin, our USC guy who asked this question, would appreciate this. Within the next five years, which is more likely to happen, USC to win a national title under Clay Helton, or Clay Helton to lose his job?
1: That depends on if Jacob Ullman's listening to this podcast or not. <laughs> if he is, I'm going to say they're going to win multiple national championships under Clay Helton and fight on Um That's that's a tough—that's unfair because so few guys win a national championship and so many more guys get fired within five years that I would think if Vegas were setting odds on it, they'd have to go with more likely to be fired. It's hard to win a national championship.
0: It is. It is. Um, How realistically do you think it is? They have the quarterback. Now, they lost a bunch of offensive linemen. They lost three guys who were at the combine. You mentioned Adoree Jackson, who was a, you know, multipurpose guy. They lost a couple of receivers including Juju Smith, one good running back.
1: I'll be able to ban- better answer. I'm going to try to get down there in the next couple of weeks to see a practice. So, I think I'll have I'll that's, not gonna, that's not going That's not going to give you much more insight. It is. It is. Uh, no, I really That's just going to give you a better tan. That's not going to give you much more insight. It's not. That's incorrect. You can't like watch a team's practice and know everything about no, you're, it, right. Well, you you can get it's, you can, you get, you get, a can better, get a little more. I'd like to, You're not going to Well, I'd like to see what kind of athletes are still out there and and who's emerging and and whatnot. Um, Because I don't know. I don't have a great read on their 2017 team yet. Yes, Sam Darnold's coming back. But, man, those guys I mentioned before in particular, those are hard guys to replace. So, you know, maybe they're better position. Maybe they're a year away, but then Sam Darnold might be gone. I don't know. What do you think?
0: A lot of what you say I agree with. I mean – I don't know. I mean, I still think they have plenty of talent. I think they have good young receivers there. They've recruited well. The part that I think will be better is the front seven. You know, the the grad transfer they got, I want to say Stevie Tuikulavatu from Utah, turned out to be a really productive player. Uh, I want to see what they get back from Kenny Bigelow. You know, he's a huge recruit who hadn't really broken through yet but because he's been injured. I think they will be better up front, and that's the part that I think gives them a chance to match up with other people because I think— I think on paper and everything I've seen and I've seen them in person, you know, some, I think they should be, they are legit to me, top five team. But a lot of things need to break right for you to get there. The thing I like the most about them, and I could be proven wrong, this could be like, you know, uh, freezing cold takes a year from now, is I do like everything I've heard about the temperament of Sam Darnold. And I think that that bodes well for them. Because if that's the leadership and that's the kind of character, and and I heard this when they were one and three, that said that uh, Clay Helton hadn't lost the team, and I think that is that was crucial. Now again, I think they are they're going to be a playoff team, and if you're a playoff team, you have a chance. So that's as far as I would go with it. But um, if I had to guess, and I to answer my own question, I think there is actually a better chance that. And within five years, he will win a national title rather than he will lose his job.
1: There you go. There's, a, there's one in uh, Clay Elton's column. Yes, but I think Kevin's right. I,
0: I do think there's, you know, there's still you know, a bunch of people out here who still want to see it, and I get why they feel
1: that way. This is an interesting one. Uh, I really like this question. James B. Hey, Bruce and Stewart. being in my mid-20s, I've never really heard much about ties in college football. I know overtime went into effect in 1996, and obviously it was for the better. However, knowing both of you have covered the sport for quite a while, I'm curious to hear how ties were viewed by fans, coaches, and the media alike. For example, I find it kind of crazy that Bobby Bowden only had four ties in his 40-plus years as a head coach, only 14 of which had those overtime rules in place. Did this mean coaches more often than not would go for the touchdown in the red zone, even if they could tie it with a field goal? And if a tie occurred between a blue blood and a sister of the poor school, would that be as impactful as a loss or be viewed as a close call for the bigger school? So, I mean, overtime was in effect by the time I started covering the sport. But I certainly remember watching college football when there were ties. Um, and it is interesting to think that somebody in their 20s has no recollection of that. Which is probably a good thing. Uh, I think it was like.
0: Like the most famous tie of all time in college football was the 1966. It was the Notre Dame-Michigan State game. Uh, you know, those were both, you know, great teams at the
1: time. It was basically the equivalent of, like, to use a modern example, the, uh, if, if, if in the Ohio State Michigan game last year, right, which was what, two versus three, something like that, and it went to double overtime, if, if instead they had just played for the tie.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, I think it was such a different year in how people operate. You go back – this game I remember, and I think you probably remember it as well, was the Miami-Nebraska national title game that – I don't want to say put Miami on the map. But it kind of put Miami over the top where Tom Osborne went for it yeah. and ended up not getting the two-point play and uh, Miami – which Howard Schnellerberg wins the national title. If they don't go for it, Nebraska is going to win the national championship even with a tie. So
1: to answer his question, it wasn't like a universal, you know, not all ties were created equal. And he brought up the um, the Bobby Bowden example. There's a famous game. This would have been one of his four ties. The Choke at Doke, the Florida-Florida State game in 1994, where uh, Florida blew a, a what was it a 28-point lead. Yeah. Florida State came back and scored 28 points in the fourth quarter to finish in a 31-31 tie clearly that was viewed as basically a victory for Florida State you know they they Florida choked that game away and ended up in a tie but the Notre Dame famous Notre Dame Michigan State example you used people were furious at Ara Parseghian for playing for the tie at the end although he did it worked they still the voters still awarded them national champions so oh and the thing about the little I don't know I didn't I don't know that off the top of my head, I'm not enough of a historian to give you a great example of a tie between a power school and a and a lesser school. Are you off the top of my head, no? And I'm just thinking
0: about it. Like, how often have you seen a, a game where it was a close loss and that other team, whether it was a Mac team or somebody, really got some kind of traction out of it?
1: Uh a few years ago, Louisiana Monroe. They first they upset somebody, oh, it was a Colton Browning team, Colton Browning, yeah. and then they almost upset it was another Arkansas SEC team. auburn
0: double, yeah, it was Arkansas, I want to say, um, yeah, you know what you're right, There was a win that was involved in it too, but yeah, I think that's true look i or look at Auburn last year, um another auburn example when after cam the next year, Auburn's opener is against Utah State. Chucky e. Keaton's first game. Chucky e. Keaton has them on the ropes. I think he's a true freshman. Um, I think it does something more for maybe to, to James's question. I actually think it does something more for the players involved as much as it does for the brand of that, you know, upstart program.
1: Two years ago, Auburn was ranked to start the season. You remember this, and uh, they had a close call against Jacksonville State, and it was you know a sign of things to come. But they won the game. But I remember they plummeted in the polls the next week. I don't think it was that the start. I remember.
0: Being it wasn't the first game
1: of the season the, but it was the early second the season. game, yeah. So if I had to guess and somebody listening can give us examples, I'm sure there were examples of a power conference team or or you know a brand name team that ended up in a tie with somebody that they were supposed to beat handily and dropped in the polls because of it.
0: Mm.
1: I can tell you that my very first game as a Northwestern student in 1994 they played Stanford. Northwestern was bad at the time and they tied Stanford and, and everybody treated that as a win. Wow, they tied Stanford. Wow. Okay, the next question
0: is from Scott Zulke. Why isn't the buyout portion of contracts for coaches reciprocal? How come the schools owe a coach more if they decide to move on before the end of the contract? It appears that Major Applewhite's contract with Houston is... Surprisingly, lopsided the other way, but this is rare. Is it me or does it make sense to have both the school and the coach owe the same amount of money to each, regardless if the school fires the coach or the school decides to leave?
1: Well, I mean that's pretty simple, right? Is leverage the if you're a hot coach, you have all the leverage, and why would this? Why would you agree to a contract where it's uh, they're you're basically gonna be punished if you take another job? Major Applewhite had no leverage; nobody else was going to hire him as a head coach other than Houston, and Houston. Has had obviously is is sick of school coaches leaving for other jobs, and in particular jobs in their own state. In, in the case of uh, Bryles, Sumlin, Herman, they all, all went. Her, yeah. They all went to in-state. So I believe that's the specific provision in his contract is he has to pay a big amount of money to if he goes to a school within his own state. The last one I remember being like that, and I'm sure this is. I mean, I'm sure there have been more since then, but just one that comes to mind very prominently. Is when Rich Rodriguez left West Virginia for Michigan, and owed a big amount of money to West Virginia, and tried to get out of it, and it became a lawsuit, and Michigan ended up having to pay off part of it. You know, there were that was uh, definitely one where it was equal whether they he left or got fired.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, everything here is leverage, though. I mean, that's the that you said it right off the top. I mean, it's I think it's as simple as that.
1: Yeah, now schools are not firing coaches because they've put in these, you know, completely one sided buyout provisions uh and and so they're they're hamstrung they can't fire their coaches now but the coach could leave at any moment yeah but there's also entanglements with the coach as well it's just a
0: matter of does the new school want to cover some of that i mean there's a lot of factors going on and i think all these contracts are very different and i think sometimes people try to paint a broad brush and sometimes i think from the outside looking in we don't always know all the factors that go into it too so
1: not to bring this back to basketball yet again, but there's been a lot of coverage of Indiana firing Tom Crean, who both of us are friendly with, and we had him on the podcast for the NCAA tournament last year. Um, you know, So obviously we're both disappointed to see that happen, but we knew it was a possibility, strong possibility. But a lot of people thought they might bring him back for one more year if only to avoid it was going to be a $7 million buyout to fire him when they did. If they had waited a year, $1 million. But they clearly the AD decided it was time. Hmm. Uh, The next question from Ben Rosenthal, you guys talk about ADs
0: a lot, but it feels like you only talk about the ADs at the Blue Blood schools. I think that's directed at you What do you think of Virginia Tech's Whit Babcock, who has done the following? Handle the retiring of a coaching legend perfectly. That would be Frank Beamer, of course. Making Making the hire that is awesome, fit, and managed to keep one of the best defensive coordinators in the country. That's Bud Foster. In a rebuilding year, we won 10 games. One hour division, and we're 30 yards from going to overtime. Seems like he's against making
1: the case for us here. Like we don't completely yeah. revitalized our basketball
0: program with the perfect hire. We're 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 about to go to the tournament for the first time, and are doing so with only seven scholarship players after losing two to injury. Made exciting hires in women's basketball, women's lacrosse both of which were ranked in the top 25 at points this year, secured two large corporate donations from companies that make sense for Virginia Tech with a total of $8.5 million, announced $21 million in upgrades to our non-football indoor practice. starting to think
1: Ben Rosenthal works at Virginia Tech sports
0: information. No, look, Whip Babcock's really well thought of. I know a guy who worked for him at a previous school who raved about Whip Babcock as an AD.
1: I think he's been tremendous at Virginia Tech, and and the thing I would point to mostly is, is the first thing Ben mentioned about handling the transition from, first of all, getting Justin Fuente, who was a great hire, and then handling the transition from Beamer to Fuente the way he did. The only thing that might be brought up against Whit Babcock is that at his former employer, his big move was to hire Tommy Tuberville, and that did not work out well.
0: Yeah, spoken like a Cincinnati native still.
1: I'm just saying, like, it's one. It's another one of those situations, much like where we talked about with John Curry, where right. Virginia Tech fans are loving him. I don't know how highly thought of he is at, of fans at his former school right now.
0: That's a fair point. You're yeah, that's true.
1: Because that was kind of a risky hire. Like, whoa, why are they bringing in a guy who seems to be nearing the end of his career in Tuberville? And the thinking was, well, we've had, much like Houston, we've had all these uh, D'Antonio and Brian Kelly and Butch Jones. You know, use it as a springboard, and we don't think Tuberville will. What he did use it as was like a semi-retirement job, so and and now it shows. Um, But You're pissed about that, aren't you? The Bearcat in you is coming out. But I don't have any (laughs) Bearcat. I rooted for Xavier growing up. No, I think he's done a great job at Virginia Tech. All right, I'm going
0: to tag one thing on and see if you can answer it
1: in the next five minutes.
0: Um, If I ask you, who has the better coaches top to bottom, ACC or SEC right now, who do you say?
1: ACC, no question.
0: No question, huh?
1: Well, we talked earlier on an earlier podcast about how hard it was to even come up with the second or third best coach in the SEC.
0: How many coaches in the ACC right now would you say are better than the second best coach in the SEC?
1: Who we never fully agreed on who the second best coach in the SEC was. No. Um, But I I would guess, here's what I would guess you would say.
0: You would certainly say Dabo. uh You would say Jimbo. (laughs) I think you would say David Cutcliffe. Uh, I don't know if you would say Justin Fuente at this point, but you might say it. That's four right there, would you say Bobby Petrino? Eh, I don't know, yeah, I would you would okay, there's five.
1: Bobby Petrino went back to Arkansas tomorrow. wouldn't you already consider him the second best coach in the conference i'm 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 struggling
0: on this because I'm doing in my head the math of I'm factoring in external factors with him, which I should not
1: uh if you factor in external factors, that changes the equation for sure. no, I know, I don't know um. Now the tricky thing about this question is, Mark Richt's at Miami. By the end of his time at Georgia, Mark Richt was he was not not the second
0: best coach in the SEC. No, he was not considered
1: a particularly good SEC coach by the end. So it would be hard for us to say he's definitely better than the second best SEC coach, even though he's off to a great start at Miami. What about where does Paul Johnson fall in this? Um, I don't know. He's
0: a good coach. I wouldn't put him above those guys. I mean, look, if Paul Johnson's the head coach at uh, Mississippi State. I don't know if he's any better than Dan Mullen. I mean, it's a tougher league. I, and I don't put Dan Mullen as number two either. I'm just saying, like, I don't think he's better coach than, than some of those other guys who are kind of spinning their wheels right now in the SEC.
1: No, I mean, I think a major reason that the ACC is on an upward trajectory in football and the SEC has been on a downward for the last couple of years is that the quality of coaches changed considerably in both conferences. And we haven't even really seen yet the full, you know, how that will play out in the ACC with Fuente... Rick, Pat Narduzzi, and uh, Bronco Mendenhall because those guys are still relatively new to their schools. Very true. Very true. Look, we didn't mention Larry Fedora. He's a good coach too. He is. And, uh, and with that, I would urge you to send more emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And as always, if you are a fan of The Audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you download podcasts, and tell 10 of your friends while you're at it. We'll see you next time.